Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on my new home at New Dissident Radio. Today is the final show of Meaty May as I interview Liz Wolf of Cave Girl Eats. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. While the USDA is publicizing its upcoming new inspection system for poultry, they're having to deal with the Food Inspectors Union being opposed to changes that could make the food inspection industry even more unsafe for the employees. The changes reduce the number of inspectors and increase the speed on the slaughter lines as well as handing responsibilities for workers in the sorting room to plant employees without any specific training. The USDA touts how this new system will be more cost efficient for the companies and government, but you can't put a price on safety. This is another reason why I have no faith in the USDA for protecting our foods. Next, the University of Missouri, Kansas City revealed a new study that showed that limiting the size of sugary drinks that people can buy will more than likely lead to people drinking more of those beverages, therefore leading to more obesity and diabetes. None of the participants in the study were told about the size reductions, but the people that had the option of the smaller size bundles almost always purchased more ounces when bundling the small size drinks together as opposed to those that could choose a larger size drink. This study was conducted as there's currently a ban in New York City on buying sugary drinks larger than 16 ounces. I don't recommend anyone consuming sugary drinks, but I don't believe New York's ban on the size of the drink is the solution. I'm glad to see this study points out the problems of such ban. In other news, citizens of Portland shot down the city measure to add fluoride to the city's drinking water by a matter of 60% against it and 40% for it. Portland Mayor Charlie Hales was a supporter of the measure but says he'll accept the will of the voters. Fluoride is a dangerous product and should stay out of our water. If you live in a city that has fluoridated water, it's best to own a reverse osmosis water filtration system. And finally, an expert committee formed by the Institute of Medicine by order of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said there's no reason for anyone to attempt to keep sodium levels below 2300 milligrams a day. Dr. Brian L. Strom, chairman of the committee, says lower sodium intake can increase your risk of heart attacks and death. We're not getting enough salt in our diet like our ancestors did. It's great to see a study by a mainstream organization arguing the benefits of sodium. And now for the main course, which today is the final episode of Meaty May. As we hear so much conventional health about how meat is bad for you, it's important to have a month raising the awareness of how pastured meats are some of the healthiest foods you can eat. Today's main course is all about how to deal with people around us that haven't been enlightened to the benefits of fats and animal products. Although I see Weston Price, Paleo, and Primal Communities as the norm, 
I do realize that we're a small minority in reality. It can be hard being around people on the standard American diet all the time and not wanting to get into debate with them. Here to talk with me about being on a traditional diet around those who aren't is Liz Wolf. Liz has a blog, Cave Girl Eats, co-hosts the podcast Balance Bites, and is the author of the upcoming book, Modern Cave Girl Eats. Liz, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Oh, well, it's wonderful to have you because actually a lot of my listeners have requested that I get you on the show. So you wanted to fill what the listeners are interested in and glad that I can finally get around to doing an interview with you. Oh, well, shucks. This will be fun. I think so. Tell us a little about your dietary history going up to how you became involved with the Price, Paleo, and Primal communities. Oh, my goodness. It's been quite an evolution, which, you know, pun intended, I guess. (laughs) I started out, well, way back in the day, just disordered eating galore. I think a lot of women that I've spoken to through my nutritional therapy practice and through the blog and through the Balance Bites podcast, I was really, for a very long time, completely ignorant of the fact that food builds our bodies you know, in direct proportion to the quality of that food. So I was looking at calories. I was looking at nutrition labels on boxes and bags and, and capsules and stuff like that and, and worrying mostly that there was no fat, no animal products. I did a lot of soy nut butter. I'm thinking back to my college days when I had a little stint actually as a, as a vegan, although I don't know that I necessarily identified myself that way, but I was certainly staying away from all animal products because that was, quote, supposed to be healthy. Did a lot of whole wheat toast with soy cheese and soy nut butter and things like that. And just really worried mostly about, you know, calories in, calories out, how, quote unquote, skinny I was and things like that. But the funny thing is, it sounds so off to me now. Like you said, we'll talk about how We forget that the way we think now is not how everybody thinks. But what's funny is it sounds so disordered the way I thought about food, but it was completely normal. And I think it is maybe not normal. Maybe normal is not the right word, but common. I think a lot of women think about food the way I do and it's supported and it's perpetuated by modern magazines, by websites, by popular culture. And it kind of blows my mind now looking back. But at some point I became intrigued by CrossFit because I had a friend who was talking about all these cool things she was able to do. She was doing pull-ups and doing all kinds of cool stuff. And I thought that might be cool. And of course, back on my mind, maybe that will make me skinny. And signed up for CrossFit, went to coach Michael Rutherford's program in Kansas City. He is an absolute genius. And as I started working out and kind of discovering my physical capacities. And at the same time, hearing a lot about this paleo diet, which was at the time really integrated in that CrossFit lifestyle, those things kind of started to fall away. Those old concerns about food and what I really thought made me a healthy woman. And so that kind of started to evolve into, well, blogging and writing a lot about my experience with cooking, what I was eating, how I was feeling and kind of the different things that were healing up and and improving in my body from digestion to my skin, things like that. Kept writing about it, kept learning, was living outside the Philadelphia area. And I heard about this Weston A. Price Foundation conference and I decided to go to that. I went to the conference in my Vibram Five Fingers, toting my paleo kits with me, thinking that I needed some kind of healthy food during this conference that I was going to, not realizing that they feed you some pretty spectacular 
locally produced foods at those conferences, had absolutely no idea. We were talking about that a little bit in a previous conversation that we had. And from there, I just continued to be fascinated with food, the locally produced, the regionally produced foodstuffs and how I could support those and things like that. So that's really just the whole evolution of the thing. Yeah, I love that term evolution of it because that does fit with what we're talking about and that we essentially are evolved to eat animal products and animal Mm -hmm. fats. And I think a lot of us have these long journeys. Most of us weren't born into it. Only a few people, like I know the blogger ancestralized me. I mean, her mom was in Weston Price and I envy her that she was able to be raised on that. She was, Laura was raised on raw milk. She's, she's told me, I'm thinking, oh, lucky. (laughs) Oh, I know. I wish that we all had that, but I think we all have similar stories and like you look back at my old ways and I can't believe that what I once thought was healthy really isn't now. And that other people don't, it's not that they don't, they don't know what we know, you know, because I think it was really a happy accident that I even became privy to a lot of this information. I feel very, very blessed that I kind of fell into it the way I did because my life has been forever changed. But I do forget that, that this information is not out there for everybody, you know, just, it's not passively available. You know, the way, the the way, um, commercials are, are just spoon feeding people this bad information or Dr. Oz or, or basically those different sources of information that people encounter just passively in their everyday lives. That information is not, it's not what we're talking about today. It's, it's completely contrary to what we like to talk about. And that still shocks me a little bit because it's so clear to me that, this is this is a healing way to eat for, for our bodies and for the earth, you know? Me too. I, I feel the same way. And kind of the way I got into it, it was, I guess, sort of an accident too. It was a lot just knowing a lot of people in the vegan community and wanting to defend meat, but originally believing, well, it's just okay in moderation. Then I learned more about how actually it's good for you. You had said you had dabbled in veganism, although you wouldn't call it that. Did you look at it more as just kind of eating a plant-based diet because you weren't into it so much for the ethics, but more for the health reason? No, you know, I looked at it. I totally understand that question. And I, and I wish that was kind of the way I thought about it because that's at least a little bit more savvy than the way I was approaching it. I honestly just thought not eating animal foods was quote, supposed to be healthy and that it would make me skinny. And I think a lot of people approach it that way. I really do. I think that weight loss, you know, health, plant-based continuum for a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people is kind of inseparable from that idea that you want to have a certain body composition, that you want to look like, you know, celebrity this or, or famous person that, and, and that's the way to do it. Right. Well, I know the vegangelicals say if you're not <laughs> into veganism for the ethics, then you're just on a plant-based diet. But I don't think a plant-based diet really exists considering the fertilizers and the bugs. So I say there's no such thing as a plant-based diet. I think that's, I think that is very fair. Yeah. I mean, you even look at the Indian culture because people often bring that up as a traditional culture that was vegetarian, vegan. And the thing was, well, what they didn't realize was that a lot of bugs and their larvae and eggs were getting into the vegetables because they were poorly washed and not sprayed. And then they developed anemia when they moved to England. There is a have you read, I'm, I'm, I think this is where 
where this is talked about, but the book Meet a Benign Extravagance. I haven't read it, but I've certainly heard great things about it. It's fabulous. He talks about, and I'm I'm 99% sure that that's the book where he where Simon Fairley talks about the actual roots of uh, vegetarianism in that culture, how it came about, this kind of clashing of a couple different sects of of uh, of religious belief, and how it it kind of spun into this cast doesn't eat meat, but this cast does and the sacred cow and all of this. And it's really fascinating. You know, when people point out things like that, like, Hey, this culture was, was, uh, you know, vegetarian or, or this culture, you know, did X, Y, and Z. There are always so many layers. And the biggest problem is we're such a soundbite culture that we want to stop the conversation there. Nobody wants to talk about the, all of the layers you know, between or beneath why a culture did something, how they got into that situation and, and stuff like that. And like you said, there there's more to the story. There is. I mean, I think another great look at the whole eating of animal products throughout history was the documentary, The Perfect Human Diet. Have you seen that? I haven't. Is it on Netflix? It'll make it easier for me. I believe it is. Yeah, you can get it on Netflix and Amazon Prime. So it's probably on all of those. And that's a great one I recommend seeing because he looks at the anthropology and the archaeology of all these societies. And certainly the study of Dr. Weston Price was a big influence in the whole documentary and his studies. And I know also Dr. Weston Price, that was a big influence in how you got to where you are. Oh, yes. I, I, I'm i trying to remember wh- where I was and what year this was. But a couple years back, I went to... Uh, get my nutritional therapy certification. It took about, I think, nine to 11 months. I can't quite remember, but it's a great program. I highly recommend it. And I discovered that program through the Weston A. Price Foundation. And it really, you know, just continued to change my life. And and from there, having that certification, I was able to start working with people, helping other people. And that's really what I wanted to do. Like I said, this changed my entire life. Uh, from there, I, I started working on my master's in public health. That's my, that's my current endeavor. But yeah, none of that, none of that would have happened if it hadn't been for finding the Weston A. Price Foundation before that being introduced to this paleo concept. And I have to say, I think you and I both agree on this, the the intersection of paleo and Weston Price is kind of where the magic happens. I think so too. And I think that there really needs to be more focus on where the two groups intersect than how they differ. Because really, the thing that people take away from both groups at the end of the day is the benefits of animal fats. I'd have to agree with at the very beginning, way back in the day when that first paleo diet book came out, I think we were still a little bit afraid of animal fats. I think it was still kind of about the more processed fats, you know, isolated fish oil, which I, I personally am not a fan of. I, I like to get either. my Okay, good. <laughs> I like to get my fish oil from fish. So things like that, the fish oil, and I know that original book, Canola Oil, was one. I remember way back when somebody was was asking me about this new paleo diet that I was trying out, you know, um, so canola oil's okay? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's okay, you know, because it's balanced omega-3, you know, whatever, and not really thinking about the sourcing, the processing, the historical precedent, things like that. And it was really the Weston A. Price Foundation that educated me about the dangers of vegetable oils and the benefits of animal fats. And and at some point, the paleo community, all of a sudden, they were there too. And you talked earlier about being in the Nutritional Therapy Association, which is a great program for training 
nutritionists and dietitians because a lot of people don't realize, but the ADA, they're heavily sponsored by a lot of these big ag companies. I mean, yes. their conventions are sponsored by, I think, like Coke and Kellogg's. You can pull up their donor report on the internet. It's Soy Joy, Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah, so it's scary what the ADA preaches. There's also been some people in the ADA that have written these position papers saying a vegan diet is suitable for all stages of life, which mm. obviously I'm doing this program, so I can't agree with that. And the Traditional <laughs> Therapy Association is such a great program that is all about the teachings and the studies of Dr. Weston Price. And unfortunately, in some states, people that are certified with it actually can't practice it there. That's correct. You really have to know. I have a lot of people that reach out to me and say, what, what did you do to get your certification, et cetera? And, and the, the crazy thing is, and, and kind of the scary thing is, you're right, we can't practice in all states. You really have to know your state. You have to have the appropriate disclaimers, and you have to be upfront with people that you're not a licensed practitioner. To me, that's a good thing. But, you know, 10 years ago, maybe I wouldn't have wanted to, you know, work with someone that wasn't uh, related in some way or, or connected to the ADA. Whereas now it's funny, I look at it as kind of a good thing to work with someone independent. But that actually kind of goes back to what this entire movement is about, which is taking personal responsibility and knowing your food and not waiting for somebody else or just believing somebody else just because they're there saying something just because, you know, I'm Dr. Oz and I'm on television and I know X, Y, and Z. It's really about trusting yourself and, and taking the time to learn your food and know your food and know what you're doing and why. And you talked a little earlier about being in this movement and trying to get specifically women interested in the movements of the paleo and primal because a lot of them, they don't see that as the right thing to do as far as eating meat. And I'm glad that we have bloggers like you and also your partner, Diane Sanfilippo on Balanced by Caitlin Weeks that does Grass-Fed Girl. So mm -hmm. how is it with trying to get women into this movement? That's such an interesting question. I think, I think a lot of times we want to ignore some of the maybe differences between the, between the way, you know, the way men and women approach Food. I think a lot of it has to do with social conditioning, however, and that is very real. So it's not necessarily that women care about things that men don't care about or, or women, you know, have concerns that don't matter and men don't fall into that trap. It's, it's not that at all. It's that we're as women and me as a woman, this is kind of, this is kind of my wheelhouse. And so I feel more comfortable talking about it, but our social conditioning starts really, really early. I mean, some of us have been programmed for decades about how we want to look, how we're supposed to achieve that, how we're supposed to behave and what we're supposed to care about. So I guess just talking about that, as I have on the Balanced Bites podcast and, and on my blog, I think just being willing to talk about it has connected with people. And that's kind of my evidence that, that my suspicion is correct, that a lot of women are afraid of robust food. You know, we want, we want plants because they're light and we want to be light. You know, we like plants because they're low calorie and we think that's 
you know, the, the Holy grail of food is something that's low calorie. So when we're talking about meat, that's, that's rich and robust and it's very nourishing. And for whatever reason, women have just forgotten to nourish themselves for a really long time. And, you know, obviously there are plenty of women out there who do not fit that bill, but I absolutely did. And I know there are people like me out there. So, you know, I want to talk about it becoming excited about and no longer feel fearful of robust food was really what changed my life the most. Because for a while I was doing paleo. I like to call it my chicken, broccoli, and coconut oil diet. <laughs> I was doing a lot of plants, a lot of really lean, petite protein. You know, none of that red meat, that that good, those good fatty cuts of, of red meat, that type of thing. And some plant fat because I heard coconut oil was actually good for you despite the fact that it was saturated. So I was comfortable with that for a while. And I stayed in that space for a little while. But coming around to eating that really nutrient dense traditional food that's incredibly just just full of nutrition that was a big step for me i was worried honestly even though i knew i was going to eat it for the rest of my life because i believed it was nutritious and it tasted good i was still afraid that i was going to you know gain weight or or look differently or that it was going to change my body in a way that I didn't want it to. But what's funny is not only did that not happen, but those concerns also fell away. Because at this point I feel like my body when well nourished becomes exactly what it's supposed to be. I certainly had some similar fears too even though I was seeing this as the lifestyle change I was going to stick with, I just sort of thought, oh, what is going to happen if I eat a lot more meat, specifically the red meat? There was just something about, am I really going to do this? <laughs> but then after a little bit, then it just becomes second nature. You just think, that's how I do it. Yep. And just in general, how is it being in a society where people are on the standard American diet and they're very fat phobic? How do you deal with that? Oh, Lord, I still can't believe people are fat phobic. It's still funny to me when I talk about butter and people give me that kind of horrified look. It's it's still always so shocking. It's, it's funny. I've been eating plenty of fat for quite some time and feeling absolutely marvelous. And And to see people that are sluggish or tired or they have some clear fat-soluble vitamin deficiency issues. So for example, one of my passions is skin health because that's one of the things that I really had a, a total turnaround was, was my skin health. So a lot of fat-soluble vitamin type deficiencies will manifest in, in skin issues. So for example, keratosis pilaris, which are those chicken skin kind of bumps on the backs of the arms and sometimes uh, on the legs as well. That's a pretty hallmark sign of vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin A is a fat soluble vitamin. It's found abundantly in egg yolks and, and in, and red meat. And, and so seeing people with who clearly need fat and fat soluble vitamins and being unable to communicate this revolutionary information to them that changed my life so profoundly. I can't communicate it in a sound bite, and I certainly can't reverse years and years and years, sometimes decades of misinformation in a sound bite. And so sometimes it's just like, oh, man, I hope we have a chance to 
eat butter together someday. I, you know, it's, it's just tough to, to know exactly what to do. It is. I just think of that t-shirt that says butter was framed. <laughs> I write about that a lot in, in my book, which is, it's a little ways off. I know when we first talked, we were, we were looking at a May release date, but we're going to release it in the fall instead. Um, fall of 2013. But I write about a ton of this in my book. There's a chapter on fat and just working through those layers of this false demonization of fat and cholesterol, how that happened and why. And it's it's one of those books. I wrote it so when people ask you the following questions, won't cholesterol give you heart disease and or isn't animal protein going to give you cancer? and or don't I need whole grains, that type of thing. It's one of those where, where I want people to be able to say, here, read this book, and, and you'll, you'll kind of understand where we're all coming from. All important things to be addressed. And now in addition to the whole myths about cholesterol, now there's this TMAO, and I don't know if you have that in any of your book. It's a rather recent discovery. I, part of the reason that, that we decided to release the book in the fall was to try and get some of this new stuff in there. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> but, but you know what? Chris Cresser and Chris Masterjohn, we have people in this community that, that tackle that stuff like it is cake. Yes. Cake. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> what about that? Well, we'll just wait to see what Chris Cresser has to say. It's just on top of things. Yeah, I love it how they captured it right away because I had read that whole article about TMAO and I'm like, I wonder if Chris Masterjohn has anything to say about it. Automatically found his response and then Chris Cresser's and they just tackled it so well that they debunked it of saying, well, a lot of these plants have higher TMAO than it just goes back to eventually going back to the cave girl and cave boy that haven't had these problems with meat. So why is TMAO a problem when we've been eating it throughout all of these generations? And what's really fascinating is that I think this discussion on TMAO has actually brought to light even, even more so than it had been kind of in my consciousness, the idea that we are our gut flora, you know, the, these microbes that are within us that help us to digest our food that kind of, that have such a bearing on our, on our individual health, our gut flora is incredibly important. And, you know, that can lead into a discussion of, you know, children who are or are not breastfed um, and who are or are not able to establish that really good gut flora that they need to have a healthy life going forward. Um, this is a relatively new, I think, field of study that a lot of people in the paleo and Western Price communities have been talking about for a very long time. And I think what's important is that we, and this goes back to something that, that I'm very passionate about within my nutritional therapy practice, and that is the digestive terrain. So we talk about these foods that are absolutely nutritious, that we are absolutely evolved to eat, and that we most definitely are meant to get our nutrition from. But the fact is, years of abuse can manipulate our digestive systems to not accept those foods as gracefully as we might like. So when we're changing food and when we're talking about, you know, how our body actually processes the foods that we want to eat, that we want to gift ourselves with, you actually end up having to look at how to optimize and heal the digestive terrain, how to cultivate that good gut flora that's going to help you digest your food. A lot of people who switch over to paleo and Weston Price from vegetarian diets or diets that are totally free of animal food, they may have a little bit of trouble 
digesting animal protein at first. That's common. And, you know, it kind of stinks to talk about it. It it, kind of stinks to acknowledge it because we want, we want this way of living and this way of eating to produce miracles immediately. But for some people who haven't used their digestive capacities, who have been eating incredibly easy to digest foods, refined foods, things like that, it's kind of use it or lose it. When it comes to stomach acid, which is required to break down animal protein, that type of thing, sometimes you have to pay a little bit of attention to to those digestive landscape type issues in order to really make things work from the get-go. What advice would you give to people that have a little trouble switching over because they're incorporating a lot more fat into their diet? I think the first thing is to not worry. So sometimes I do hear from people that are, oh, I just, I can't digest animal protein or, oh, I can't digest all this fat. And I like to say, yeah, you probably can if you've spent the last two decades not eating it. The the truth is the body will adjust. Sometimes it takes more time than people want it to take. For me, I knew nothing of digestive support when I first started out in this way of life and I I kind of pushed through it and, and my body regained those digestive capacities and, and everything was good. But for folks who want this to work with absolutely no learning curve, it's helpful to get some digestive support. And when I say digestive support, I mean, first and foremost, sitting down and thinking about your food and enjoying your food and enjoying the experience of eating and chewing extremely well. Because hardly any of us were conditioned to do that over time. I mean, most of us ate on the go or, you know, ate at our desks while we were working, that type of thing. And that completely bypasses so many of the digestive steps that we need to actually properly break down our food. So that's number one. And you really can't, you can't skip that step. You know, you can't supplement your way out of just needing to sit down and focus on your food and chew it well. From there, if you're having trouble in particular digesting animal protein, you probably are looking at needing some stomach acid support for the short term. Usually the body will pick up these natural capacities and start, you know, churning and burning as they're supposed to once again. But if you wanted to do some digestive bitters or even some some actual betaine hydrochloride that is stomach acid. You can get that in, in, a, in a supplement. You can try that. If you're having trouble digesting fat, it may be that you need some gallbladder support. So there are a couple of different ways to do that. One way is through uh, like a beet juice concentrate. One is through ox bile supplementation. Some of the stomach acid supplementation will actually also activate some of the signaling hormones that stimulate your gallbladder to work as it should. So you can kind of cover a couple of bases that way. And then if you're having trouble, and we all know if we're having trouble in the lower GI area, that's usually very evident. Um, That's usually a problem of number one, what's going on up the pike. So you're dealing with the stomach acid stuff. You're dealing with the gallbladder stuff. It should get better along the line, but it can also be a a question of needing to cultivate some good, strong gut bacteria. And you can do that through traditional foods back to Weston A. Price again, through fermented foods, sauerkraut, uh, raw milk, kefir, homemade yogurt, things like that. Right. And you're talking about beet juice. Beet kvass is a great fermented Mm. food also. You talked to Scott from ZK, yes. didn't you? 
I did, yeah. When you brought that up, I thought just of Scott and Zuke Foods. Yeah, they're fabulous. I mean, that's another great trick is the beet kvass because we hear a lot about the kombucha and the caper, but kvass is also a great one. And that was why Scott got into it because he saw there wasn't someone that had cornered the market on that. So I thank him for having great product out there. Most definitely. Another really cool thing about about beet kvass, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this mechanism. I'm, I'm not super familiar with it, but I've done a little bit of reading on it, is it appears that kvass, beet kvass, can either upregulate nitric oxide production, something, something having to do with nitric oxide that actually functions as an anti-inflammatory in the body. Oh, kind of wow. cool stuff. So yeah. it's the many, the many different, you know, faces of traditional food. There, there are benefits that we don't even know yet. Right. Certainly a lot of benefits with traditional foods of animal fats and also with the ferments. And we're going to talk more about these and what it's like being a supporter of all these in the modern world. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm talking to Liz Wolf of the very popular blog Cave Girl Eats. We're talking about how to be on a traditional diet of groups such as Weston Price, Paleo, and Primal in a world that is not so much connected with these traditions. Now, Liz, you're from Philadelphia area. How is it there as far as gaining access to sustainable foods, specifically pastured meats and local produce? It's really fantastic. I'm married to the military, so we were actually in Philadelphia for about four years around that area, Um, but I'm from Kansas City originally. And before, when I was in Kansas City, before we moved to the Philadelphia area, I wasn't thinking about this stuff so much, so I never actually went out there and looked for for uh, for local farms or regional foodstuffs, that type of thing. Because as some people may know, Kansas is is 
pretty dense in factory farms. So for me, growing up driving through, you know, Emporia, Kansas, on the way to basketball tournaments, things like that, you could smell, you can smell the 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 factory farms, and and it's just not pretty. So to me, I always kind of thought that that's what what animal production smelled like, and and that's that was the only way to to raise to raise meat for food. So interestingly enough, so but going out to Philadelphia and that uh, that area, which is you know right right up next to New Jersey, which is actually the Garden State. It's pretty amazing. I had a couple of farms that I went to really frequently and would stock up. I went to Cherry Grove Farm in Princeton, New Jersey. I went to Birchwood Farm in Pennsylvania. Raw milk is legal in Pennsylvania. It is not at this time in New Jersey. So I kind of patronized farms on both sides of the of the state line and was really, really impressed at, at the local food culture that was there. And, and I'm excited to, to learn a little bit more about the local food culture in Kansas and Missouri, where where we have relocated back to just recently, and and actually we've moved to about 15 acres, and we'll be getting goats and chickens here within the next uh, two three weeks, and are looking forward to producing some of our own food now that we're back in the Midwest and on some land. Well, that sounds great. So it's yeah. kind of a thing. If you're living in an area where it's not very sustainable in terms of food, bring the sustainable food to you. Absolutely. And you know what? It's That's really hard. I've already come up against, you know, you and I had to reschedule this call because the crazy weather out here in the Midwest and all of the unexpected that happens on the farmstead, that type of thing. I mean, we had crawdads washed up on our patio from this incredible storm that we had over the last couple of days. So this is all it's so unpredictable and it's given me a newfound respect for other homesteaders and for people that are producing food responsibly and ethically and with love for the environment and for the animals that they produce, because it's difficult. It's, it's tough just to live on this much space, let alone, you know, make something of it. So I'm definitely grateful to the folks that are. And when you talk about Kansas, I mean, it just reminds me now I realize I'm spoiled living in LA where we have, (laughs) farmers markets every week in almost every town in LA and I think of Kansas that sounds like in some ways that could be one of the worst offenders you're talking about the factory farming and also barbecue which goes along with the factory farming are there any grass-fed barbecue places in Kansas City not in Oklahoma's is absolutely phenomenal it's world famous barbecue but I know every time I I go there I know I am not eating of the I'm probably eating of the factory farm, unfortunately. Right. Well, and that's a question I had for you. When you go out, how strict are you? I'm pretty strict. It's just because I'm not all that interested in conventional food anymore. And now and then, you know, when when we have visitors come through Kansas City, oh, you have to go to Oklahoma Joe's. You have to go to the the barbecue that's out of the gas station, you know, on um, on 43rd and I understand that that's an experience and I'll, I'll buy into that now and then. But for me, it's so much more exciting to either a cook at home and learn to cook, which I'm pretty terrible at, but I'm getting better, but it's so much more exciting to find a a local restaurant that actually serves local food, local responsibly raised, sustainably raised food. And I'm not 
too far away from that. There are a couple restaurants within an hour or so that, that do that. And I think that it's worth the drive for sure. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and pout and go hungry and, and, you know, make a spectacle out of myself when I'm with a group of people that are making a different choice than I would prefer to make. But I, I feel it. I, I definitely do. And in, in my heart, I, I feel a little bit sideways about that choice, to be very honest. I do too. And for me, I kind of do it a little more than I'd like to, but I'm single guy. So it's involved a lot of going out with friends. Mm -hmm. I try to be the one that suggests where to eat. And that way it can be something at least a little better, but not 100% perfect. But like you, I'm just more interested really in the real food. So I just kind of become in a way less interested with trying out all these new trendy restaurants. But I also like to think of the 80-20 concept that Mark Sasan of Mark's Daily Apple has come up with. Yeah. And I like that. And here's the thing. I think I started out with this way of life when I was first doing the paleo thing with a lot of finger wagging. I was very, you know, I wagged the finger at myself like, you shouldn't eat that and you should eat that. And I would be a little bit more aggressive about, you know, telling people about how I was eating and why they should eat that way too. And I'm really not, I'm not into that anymore. I think that each one of us is doing the best that we can. Most people are. And, and in the end, it's your body and it's my body. And it's just eyes on your own plate, eyes on your own body, eyes on your own experience. And the best any of us can do is, is live the best life we can, the best life we know how. And, and if it's, and if it's helpful to people and then it's helpful to people, if people like to look at that and maybe um, become a little bit more curious about things and that's cool. And I learn from other people too. I learn from watching other people and, and what they do. You know, I'm not saying my way is the only way, but I like to observe other people, their choices, ask them questions and learn from them as well. So one thing I do a lot of when eating out is asking questions to the waiters specifically about fried food. I will ask what it's fried in. Yeah. Yes. So important. I wrote an email recently to my to my newsletter list. I call them email Mondays and I the title of it was Don't Get Margarined. And we have no idea what they are frying the food in. It's usually reused you know, damaged industrially processed vegetable oils because those are cheap and that's what most restaurants use. I personally would rather accidentally have a bite of gluten containing food than, than be exposed to vegetable oil because I can definitely tell when I've been exposed to vegetable oils. I just think those are so toxic to the system. By the same token, a lot of times you'll ask for butter and they'll actually bring you margarine. <laughs> you gotta, I mean, you have to be annoying and you have to ask. <laughs> You do, and a number of other my colleagues I know ask, although then I have other ones, Western Price members, that they're amazed that I actually ask these questions in restaurants. In L.A. right now, there's a very trendy thing for duck fat fries, but the problem with them is they're all cooked in a combination of duck fat and a vegetable oil. Really? Yeah. So I've been to two, and the first one, I asked if I could have it cooked only in duck fat, and they said no, so, well, I'm not getting your duck fat fries, but... There was more recently a food truck that had them, and they also cooked it in a combination. And I asked, well, I want this only cooked in duck fat, and they fulfilled my request. So it is possible to get them to do only duck fat. 
That is just shocking to me. There should be an official standard for that, or there should be a law about this. So when we're talking about, for example, restaurants or the food supply or whatever it is, or words that we see on, for example, our meat or our eggs, like all natural, which doesn't really mean anything at all. It means no. it's not produced in a laboratory. That's basically all all natural means. And so people get up in arms and say they want some kind of federal standard for what all natural means. And we get kind of offended about companies using marketing terms that actually don't mean anything. But I don't want a bunch of federal standards, official government standards for words and for marketing and for whatever. I just want everybody to be well-informed. And maybe that's a crazy dream, but I'm probably one of the least likely people to have become better informed. It was just on the path that I was on and I was not all that interested. And like I said, it was kind of a happy accident that I got into this world. But we have the internet, we have blogs, we have Facebook pages. We're more interconnected than anyone in history has ever been. And so if there's something interesting, like you figured out with the duck fat fries being fried in an actual combination of vegetable oil and duck fat, you just make a little comment about that on your Facebook page or oh, on yeah. your podcast. Oh, there were uh, lots of comments and yeah, I got a lot of nice responses. Some people were jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and now people know. It's not something that we need to take to the highest levels of government and have some standard be polluted by all of the special interests in government as what happens with the word organic and the word grass-fed. Those are actually regulated terms. And to be honest, those standards have been really diluted because they were regulated and because there are special interests involved with that. So we all just need to be talking about what's important to us, not evangelizing and not being aggressive towards other people and not allowing them to make their own choices, but just talking about this stuff. Everybody should be blogging or podcasting or something. That's what I think. I love to read people's blogs. I don't care if you blog once a month or if you're not blogging as a business. I don't care. I want to read your experience and you want to read what you're putting out there for the rest of the world to learn from. And I want to throw in YouTube here because there's a great video I've seen going around on YouTube called How Canola Oil is Made. So if you type yes. in those words in YouTube and you see that video and you see exactly how this stuff is made, it's hard to know how anyone can eat it again. And for my own kind of information, I decided to search on YouTube if they had any video about how coconut oil is made. And I did find one, and I think people should actually watch both of those because you see a comparison that canola oil is in these big machinery and stuff. Just for this little canola oil, they have to use these large machines in these mega factories. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, coconut oil, it's handmade. You can literally squeeze, if you squeeze coconut flakes enough, you can get some coconut oil. Right. So watch those two videos. And after seeing those, tell me which you feel safer eating. The answer is pretty easy for me. Kind of a no brainer. Yeah, I have. That's that's a great call out. I have that canola oil video on my YouTube channel. It's pretty horrifying. It is. And there's a lot of videos. If you look at one of those videos of these chicken in the shed in, in cramped conditions, that's what the cage free free range chickens often are. Yes. And, and, you know, to that point, what's interesting is that we say when we see how canola oil is made, it disgusts us so much and we never want to eat it again. I could see how people watching a video of how free-range chickens are treated would make them never want to eat chicken again. You know, so it's definitely, it's a matter of communicating to folks that that's not the way food has to be produced. We, we think that that's the only way to get, to get meat for food, but it's 
absolutely not. It isn't. And I'm not a big fan of people basically going undercover, lying about what they do in order to get a job to do this undercover footage. But there is this one undercover video that any evangelical will push around called Farm to Fridge, which is put out with Mercy for Animals. And despite how the video was obtained, I don't disagree with them bringing to light the whole issue of factory farming. Mm -hmm. But I have a big issue with the last thing they say at the video, which is there's a better way go vegan. No, there's <laughs> a better way. Eat pastured meats, visit the farms, know where your food comes from, know how it's raised. That's the better way. Absolutely. And and that's how we are enriching the soil naturally without chemical fertilizers. That's how we're supporting local foodstuffs and the the agricultural, you know, conglomerates are, I think, slightly frightened at this new real food movement that understands exactly what you just said. But, it's, you know, I talk about this in Modern Cave Girl. I talk about how the factory farming industry is actually the, the child of the uh, vegetable oil industry and the, the big agriculture industry. It, it is the parent the, the, of, of factory farming, because the whole reason concentrated animal feeding operations came on the scene was because there was this surplus of protein-rich meal from the vegetable oil industry that was spawned from all of this, you know, illogical fear of natural animal fats just a few decades ago. So, I mean, this is, this is written in the history, in the history books, and, and you can find this, there's a book called uh, Margarine and Economic, Social, and Scientific History that discusses very, you know, objectively and, and very plainly that the surplus from the vegetable oil industry and the margarine industry was able to set the foundations for concentrated animal feeding operations. And that continues, that relationship continues to this day. So whoever you are, if you're vegan um, and you're eating grains or vegetable oils or, or any kind of byproduct creating type food, that, uh, that extra, you know, that detritus, that byproduct of the industry that you're eating from is going straight to the factory farm. It's also a child of the GMOs because the stuff that these animals are fed is all GMO and it's mm -hmm. corn and soy, all genetically modified. Mm-hmm. I think something like 90% or at least in 2011, I believe just based on um, what the government was subsidizing at the time and where the surplus was, you know, uh, amongst corn, wheat. And so I, I think about 90% of the wheat production in the United States. And like you said, most of that is actually of the genetically modified, hybridized, big agricultural conglomerate ilk about 90% of that actually went straight to the factory farm. It's really all related factory farming, GMOs, it Big all goes together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's one area where these all fall into. And when you look at factory farming, it pretty much has everything that's wrong with modern food. Yeah, and people are quick to say, how else can we feed the world but through this type of large-scale agriculture and genetically modified organisms and, and how animal production is not sustainable. 
well, it may not be in a factory farm environment, but it absolutely is. And, and animals are actually critical to a sustainable farm. But but this whole idea that we can't feed the world without GMO and without big agriculture and without shipping the products of big agriculture all over the world and without using all of the world's free space to produce these things, it's it's absolutely false. And um, Simon Fairley in Meet a Benign Extravagance, he actually talks about that quite a bit. And I would add the documentary American Meat also greatly mm-hmm. explains how having local farms for people to get their food is the solution that we need to do. Because look at it, the prices of gas is going up and we can't rely too much longer on all of this for a solution with that transporting it everywhere and the price of gas. So there's a lot of land also that's being unused that we can use to farm because mm-hmm. only about 10 to 20 percent of the land is suitable for growing just plants. So by mixed farming, we can enrich the soil and grow plants in areas that we weren't able to before and get the meat. And I mean, that's really the solution for the world problem. The whole issue of veganism and their whole concern over meat is really a first world problem. <laughs> yes. That they can afford yes. to buy all these supplements and they don't really eat very local because otherwise they wouldn't be able to eat a lot of the fruits and vegetables that they're getting. And you look at third world countries, well, they're not going to be able to have all these plants and supplements imported to them, but there's a lot of native animals that they can eat that can keep them healthy and nourished. And the thing about animals is that they concentrate the nutrition from plants. And, you know, I saw, I think Oxfam is the, is some kind of charity, something like that overseas. But I remember seeing a sign in an airport, maybe through Oxfam or somebody else that was talking about um, giving the gift of a goat to a family in need in Oh, I can't remember where it was, but the, but the idea is, and what this, what this charity seemed to understand, which was very impressive to me was that goats can take nutrition that's not available to humans, um, via roughage, things that grow, you know, in, in more hostile areas of the world, climate wise, they take that nutrition and they can turn it into milk and meat. Um, whereas we positively cannot do that. It's, it's a physiological impossibility. And like you said, veganism is really kind of a first world modern luxury, the same way lettuce, Sally Fallon said this at some point, I think in the oiling of America, that lettuce is a modern luxury. A lot of these plants that people rely on for the bulk of their calories, it's completely impractical. It is really difficult to produce enough plants to, to, um, address our caloric needs. And what animals do is they are built to turn plants into protein that's bioavailable to us. And that's really a beautiful thing. It is. And the other thing is these animals, specifically the ruminants, the herbivores, they have multiple stomachs that they're able to ferment these plants. We don't. So Mm -hmm. I always say to people, I'll believe that we're meant to only eat plants when we have more than one stomach. Right. I talk about that quite a bit in the, the protein chapter of my book, this, this myth that, um, you know, the digest, the great digestive debate between, between vegan and omnivore. And it's really, it's really a distraction from the point, which is some people don't feel comfortable eating animals because they feel that killing is cruel and killing is difficult. It's absolutely, it's absolutely a difficult thing, but it's a reality that we have been pushed so far away from because we've compartmentalized the way our food is produced. And, you know, 
things die in the production of, of plants as well. On a very broad scale, field mice, for example, um, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Browning or, or somebody that, that wrote a little poem about having turned up the habitat of a field mouse while plowing his field. And it's just something that we need to acquaint ourselves with because we are human. We are different from, from many of these organisms in the world that, that maybe don't have the same you know, capacity for, for thought or the same turn of thought that we have. But we can harmonize ourselves with nature rather than trying to make nature fit into our, our emotional comfort zone. You know? Right. The other thing is, in order to grow more plants, we have to destroy habitats, so animals are killed in that way. So I'm very excited about your book. I love that you give a little preview of it. Is there a way that people can pre-order the book? Yes, available for pre-order on Amazon, and that's probably the easiest way to do it. Uh, if you, you can go through my website as well. I have a little link to it in the sidebar. So Amazon or via cavegirleats.com, you can go click on that and, and check out what it's all about. It's, it's really about food myths, food truths, and, and kind of that, that history. You know, the, the biochemistry, the science is really well covered by so many of these leaders, like we were talking about in the Weston A. Price Foundation, Chris Masterjohn, people like that. And so I really wanted to tackle food history and, and give people a context, you know, as to why we got to where we are today. So, yeah, the pre-order on Amazon and yeah. also go on your blog, Cave Girl Eats. And you also are a fellow podcaster. Tell the listeners where they can find your podcast. Yes, Diane Sanfilippo, who is a certified holistic nutrition consultant, and she also wrote the New York Times bestseller, Practical Paleo. We do a weekly podcast, the Balanced Bites podcast. That's on iTunes. You can submit a question to the podcast by going to balancedbites.com slash podcast. We answer questions every week and talk about, you know, a little pop culture Little, little sassiness going on in there as well. So we have fun. All right. Well, we have to go to our desserts in a second. But Liz, it's been great having you on the program. And I think this is a great way to close out Meaty May. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. As the Weston A. Price Foundation's International Wise Traditions Conference in November is now open for registration, so is the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund Dinner Fundraiser, which is always held the Thursday night before the conference. This year, it will be the debate of the decade as Dr. Joseph Mercola and Joel Salatin participate in a Lincoln-Douglas-style debate over the resolution resolved that the federal government should mandate GMO labeling on food. You can buy your tickets to the dinner and debate by going to the website farmtoconsumer.org and you can register for the Wise Traditions Conference by going to the site westonaprice.org. In local Weston Price happenings, the Pasadena chapter will be holding its monthly meeting this Wednesday, May 29th, starting at 6.30 at the Nature Friends Clubhouse in Sierra Madre. The topic this month is Bring a Friend Night, Introduction to Your Local Chapter of the Weston A. Price Foundation. You'll be able to share your story, meet the chapter leaders, and learn about the works of Dr. Price from our friend Sand Cooper. This is a great opportunity for newcomers. We encourage you to bring a friend along. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is Ari Weinswig of the Zingerman's Restaurants. For more information on my guests, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. 
Okay, well, I'll uh, 